So, do you ever hear the phrase, bigger is better? More is better. Did I hear that one? Better to be envied than to be pitied. That's a good one. Better safe than sorry. Better the devil that you know than the devil that you don't know. That's a very Christian better. And my all-time favorite, better you than me. Unless, of course, you're getting a Harley Davidson, then better me than you. Better is one of those words that we can kind of use in comparison of, of two things. It kind of describes two opposites or two maybe even of the same thing. And we make this comparison that this is better than that. And that is probably a little better than the other thing. And so we, we have this word, and, and it's the word better, but we use it to kind of contrast different things and to discern what may be the better thing to engage in, to choose, the, the better direction to go in. Now, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he's taking this idea of better, this word, and he wants to use it to instill in us some wisdom, to instill in us kind of a, a direction that we should be living life in. Now, remember last week, we, we ended chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, and he kind of left us with this question. He's, he's like, I'm just not really sure what's good for a person to do or to live for their short days. Here on this earth. As we enter into chapter 7, he is going to begin to unpack that for us through this, this idea of comparing what's better. Now, understand that it takes some discernment for us that when we're looking at two things and trying to discern what one's better than the other one, well, we should discern properly because it could mean the difference of of moving forward or moving backwards. It could, it could have a very large impact on our lives if we choose the one that maybe isn't so much better than the other. You got to get where I'm going. And so when we get down to following God, we should discern in our spirits what is better than something else. It's always better the things of Scripture or the things of God than what the world has to offer us. And so we're kind of launching into chapter 7 this morning. And chapter 7 begins to get a little scattered. It, it gets scattered in the thought process of the teacher. And this is one of the reasons why uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is attributed to, by scholars to Solomon because Solomon wrote Proverbs. And if you ever read Proverbs, it can get pretty intense where one verse, you can just preach one verse and then it just jumps to another topic or another subject and then to another. And then to, I can imagine trying to preach through Proverbs would probably take me the next 20 years. Don't worry, we're not going to do that anytime soon. Um, but that's what chapter seven begins to feel like of, of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of very scattered in the wisdom. 
And so the first four verses begin to talk about life and death. And then verses 5 and 6, he begins to talk about um, it's better to be rebuked by a wise person than to engage in foolish laughter with fools. And then he goes into uh, waiting patiently on God and, and trusting that God's plan will come to fruition. By the time we end halfway through the chapter, around verse 12, he's talking about the... the um, the value of wisdom. And so we're just going to get right into it. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. It says, A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. So right away, verse 1, he's got this double comparison going on. He speaks about having a a good name, which is a, a good reputation. What people think of you when you're not around. What they say of you when you're not kind of face to face with them. And he says a good name is valuable. It's more valuable than perfume, which for us, we're going to go, well, duh. But back then, you have to understand that perfume and oils, this was, this was um, a lifestyle of the rich and famous. These things were traded. It was very costly to own perfume or perfumed oils. In fact, because um, the hygiene of the Middle East in the first cent- or the early before the first centuries wasn't all that great, meaning there wasn't a lot of showers to be taken, perfume was really important. So you can cover up your scent with something better. And so he is telling us that this very thing that's costly and it's, it's for the rich and for the famous, a good reputation is better than material wealth. A good name, a name of character, a name of integrity is better than something that costs a lot of money. Now, truth be told, everything that we say, everything that we do, adds to our reputation, adds to our name. Whether it be good or bad, all of our actions add to who we are, not only on the inside, but how people see us. And I wonder if we think about life from that perspective. Like, do we think about the things that I'm saying, the things that I'm doing... They are not only a reflection of what's in my heart, but it'll also begin to shape for me a reputation in other people's eyes. I wonder if we really kind of took that to heart, would we change the way we used our words or the things that we did? I guess the ultimate thing for the church is that we would reflect the character or the name of Jesus. I mean, ultimately, that's what we we really want, that we want to possess his character traits, that we want to be Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we have a joyful spirit or is it a critical spirit? Do we speak truth or do we tell lies or we don't like the word lie? Do we embellish? Do we just talk about love or do we show love? Are we selfish? Are we generous? Generous? Can people count on us or are we a bit flaky? These all are a reflection of the name that we are building for ourselves. Now, 
don't get me wrong, you're never going to make everyone happy. And it's not all that you are defined by what everyone thinks of you. But the scripture talks about having a good name, a good reputation, especially with people outside of the church. What is the name that you're building for yourself? And so it says, a good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. So he's gone from perfume and character to birthdays and funerals. Again, you can feel the little scatteredness, but it's all the word of God, and so it's all for us to glean and to learn and to understand. And this second part of this verse, it's it's a bit open-ended, and many will translate it in a very negative way, that life is just so difficult and so horrible that it's better that you just die and just stop living because things just get so bad. Or maybe if, if we even could tweak that a little bit and say, well, that life is hard and the day of our death is a, a type of relief or a deliverance. We know that's true for those who die in faith. But when you take these ideas together, expensive perfume, good character, they're, they're both good things, they're not bad. And so, could it be that the day of our birth and the day of our death have meaning for us? I think Paul would kind of wrestle with this whole idea when he writes this to the Philippian church. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So Paul is just kind of going, man, you know what? I I know that if I stay around and I stick around that I'm going to continue working for the kingdom of God. But to be with Jesus sounds so much more inviting. You know, we're born into this world with a lot of different possibilities of what we can accomplish. God has given us passions and desires and, and uh, he's gifted us with opportunity. When we're born into this world, our possibility to make a footprint for the kingdom of God is, is almost endless. And again, through how God has gifted us and created us. And yet, as a believer, when one dies with faith in Jesus Christ, we stand in the presence of him. We stand in the presence of Christ in a way that we just don't fully understand. Like we stand before him in his glorified body that rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, yet we are in the spiritual realm. We stand before Jesus. Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Church, our physical death is our entryway into glory. It's our moment of arrival. Like, it's when you arrive. It's your homecoming. It's, it's, we're back with our creator. 
Now, I think to, to kind of get a hold of, of that first verse, we have to look at the life of Christ. December 25th, we celebrate Christmas. It's the birth of Christ. We celebrate when Jesus came, or when God came to earth as a human being, incarnate, to be one of us, to live with one of us, to suffer with one of us, to know our human condition, and ultimately to save us. We celebrate it in the church. We celebrate it culturally, even though it's kind of changed its focus a little bit over the years. We look to Bethlehem and that glorious day of the birth of Christ as a day to celebrate. But we also look to Calvary and the death of Jesus as a day to celebrate because his death offers us our life. The birth of Christ did not save us. The birth of Christ did not reconcile us back to God. Yet he had to be born. He had to be born of a woman. He had to fulfill what the prophets said. God with us. But it was his death on the cross. This is where God made everything right. This is where God said, I love this world so much. I am going to do something to save it. And he offered his son for the forgiveness of our sin. So not only do we celebrate birth, we celebrate his death. Now, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he's going to continue to kind of press into this, this tough subject a little bit more in the next couple verses. He says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. I have, in my time as a pastor, officiated almost uh, 30 funerals. And some of those, uh, I would get a phone call from somebody I haven't seen or heard of, and, and I would be asked to, to do the funeral, and I didn't really know the person. But many, many, the majority of those funerals, they were in context. And so I had relationship with the person who died. I had relationship with, with the family leading up to the sickness or leading up to the tragedy and afterward. In fact, just last night, I had a phone call about 8 o'clock from a family. And a young woman of 34 was lying in the hospital in critical condition. And I went and we cried and we prayed and we hugged. And we prayed over her. I prayed a prayer that God would receive her spirit. And I went home and a few hours later she passed away. Death has a lot to teach us about life if we let it. Now, this verse is not saying that partying and festivities and celebration are a bad thing. We know they're not. We know that we need these things in our life. We need to cut loose every once in a while. We need to put the lampshade on our head and dance on the table once or twice in our life. 
But as we know, sometimes those celebrations and parties can be a little bit superficial. There is nothing, it's very hard to be superficial when you begin to experience death. When you pray over someone who is in the last moments of their life, it's raw, it's, it's truthful, it gets to the core of who we are as a person. When you walk into a house of mourning, of grieving, you feel the humanness, you feel the weight, it's physical. You feel the pain that's in the family. Loss feels very comprehensive in those moments. And this is the house of mourning that the teacher is talking about. It's when we didn't, they didn't have funeral homes and or churches back then, and so you went to the home and you grieved with the family in their home. There's much to learn about life when we come face to face with death. But we don't like to, to come face to face with it. We do very poorly with it in our society. Culturally, we don't like to talk about death. In fact, we don't even use that word very often. We, we say that, well, they, they've passed away, or they've gone to a better place, or they're not with us anymore, which are all very true, but honestly, they've died. And our culture says, well, you got three days of grieving, and then you got to get back to work. We don't do death well in our culture. Yet we know, we, we know, we rest on the promise that those who have died in Christ will live again. It's the scripture. It's the promise. And yet for those who are left, it causes us to mourn and to grieve, which can turn us toward Jesus. Because I'm telling you, in those moments of such loss, the world has nothing to offer us that can make it better. The world has nothing to give us to say, this is going to get better. The only one that we can go to for our strength, for our healing, is the author of life. And that's God himself. It causes us to think about our own mortality. It causes us to think about the people that we love, our friends and our family. Confronting death teaches us, can teach us how to live. In Psalm, uh, Psalm 90, verse 12, it says, Teach us to number our days so that we can have a heart of wisdom. Teach us to understand that this is just for a short period of time so that we can begin to make better choices in our lives, so that we can live to the fullest and engage the gift that Jesus has given us, an abundant life. Again, remember we said last week, not abundant things, but an abundant life. If we allow it, death can teach us how to live. If you pay attention, and if you allow yourself, you will learn more about life, living, and humanity by walking with one person who has lost someone they love than by attending a thousand birthday parties. A sad face is good for the heart, so he says. 
And when he talks about the heart, he's talking about like the, the deep down inside where thought and emotion reigns. The thing that God sees very clearly, but many times we try to hide it from the rest of the world. See, a sad face makes us begin to, to think and to feel. And you can't push those things aside. You can't just laugh them away. It confronts us with the stark reality of the brevity of life. I've experienced many, many lessons as I've walked with many people through that experience. And many of them, I would never be able to put into words. It's just something that illuminates in your heart. So now that I've bummed you all out, He continues on. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the songs of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. So basically what he's telling us again in this very scattered train of thought, it's better to get yelled at by somebody who's a wise person than to party on down with a bunch of fools. If you want to learn to live well, then allow yourself be open to receiving correction from someone who is much wiser than you are. Most people don't enjoy being corrected. Like, I don't think many of us get up in the morning and go, I'm hoping for a good rebuke today. But how inviting is the laughter of fools? That could be much more fun to take part in. And yet he describes foolishness in a very interesting way. It's like the crackling of thorns under the pot. And so I got to ask myself, what is all that about? The crackling of thorns under the pot. He's talking about a fire that's burning thorn bushes. And how is that to be compared to the laughter of fools. And I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe the crackling of the fire is like the, the crackling of the laughter of, of fools. And then I thought, that seems to be a bit of a stretch. And so I was trying to think through this. And so I read up, and, and I'm trying to understand this. And, and maybe it has to do with, you know, thorn bushes are just little twigs. There's no real substance to the fire. And you throw these bushes on, and it heats up really quick, and it dies down really quick. And so it's not really, the fire's not really good for cooking anything, and the fire's not really good for heat. So it's really just a waste of time. It's worthless. And so he's getting to the point where these types of celebrations by foolish people, they're not really good for anything. It's all very superficial. It doesn't amount to much. Laughter comes quickly with the fool, and it can end just as fast. And so these verses kind of lend themselves to the seriousness of the verses that came before, that a wise person would come alongside us and say, listen up, man, get serious, pay attention. The wisest of people will point us to the Scripture will point us to God, that we can live in those rhythms that God invites us to live in. There is a serious side of life, a side that we have to confront. And a wise person will help us in those moments to see, to understand, and to engage. And so he continues on in his scattered way. He says this, extortion turns a wise person into a fool. 
and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not a wise question to ask, or not a wise, not wise to ask such a question. So he begins to kind of unfold for us this idea of, of a godly perspective. And after a warning about the dangers of power and money, he encourages us to look at life in an overall bigger picture. Look at the marathon and not necessarily the sprint. The end of a situation, the end of a matter, which he's referring to something that we've begun and then it's come to its conclusion. Sometimes the beginning of a venture doesn't start off all that great. Sometimes things start off a little rocky, a little bit shaky. But yet, as we run the course, do you ever have that feeling, that, that, that feeling of, wow, things kind of worked out better than the way I planned? Sometimes the end of a matter is much better than the beginning. And this is very true when we pursue the things of God in our life. When we start to live and to press in to who God is and who God is calling us to be. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, he said, God works good in all things for those who love him. I've always wrestled with that verse. I've always thought, you know, I know the scripture is true, but there must be a typo with the word all. They could have changed it to most, a majority, a lot, because it doesn't feel like to me all things. It doesn't feel like to me that God is working for my good in all of the things that I've experienced in life. And as a pastor, I've walked through some very dark nights of the soul with other people, and it doesn't feel good. And yet, it's still the word of God. And we may not be able to see the big picture. But God is working for the good of his people. And it plays itself out even in the little stuff. Even when we take a few stumblings toward him and our steps are uncertain and we fall flat on our face. In his grace and in his mercy, he still chooses to bless Our stumbling toward God. I've always pictured it this way. A child who's just beginning to walk. And you say, come here child who's just beginning to walk. And this child's arms out, walking like they've had too much beer, stumbles toward you and falls flat on their face. And do you yell at them? You laugh with them. You pick them up and you tell them, try it. Even our stumbling towards God, he will work out for good. And ultimately, his plan of salvation is the ultimate. The end is better than the beginning. Remember, born in Bethlehem, this young teenage mom and her older husband 
arrive at a stable with animals. I don't know if you've ever been in a stable, but there's a lot of poo in a stable because of animals. And this young mom delivers this baby, and the baby is put in a manger, and we think, oh, a manger. That's where all these pooey animals eat out of. And so there's animal schmutz. And this child, born in the messiness of life, is king. He's king. And one day he will grow. And he will give his life so that we can be forgiven. He has ushered in the kingdom of his father. And his kingdom will have no end. But it was the end of his life that gave us life. The ending was much better than the beginning. And then in verse 10, it says, Don't say, why were the old days better than these? Do you ever find yourself reminiscing about the good old days? I will almost guarantee that if you got back to the good old days, they probably weren't as good as you remember them. We like to romanticize about the good old days. So don't get stuck in the past. Don't keep going backwards thinking that the past is better. Because God is always doing a new thing. God is always pointing us forward. It's why the rear view mirror is really small in the car and the windshield is really big. We're to look forward to where we're going. Paul says, forget about the past. Learn from it. Don't dwell in it. Accept the forgiveness that is there in it and move forward because our God is doing a new thing. Our God is pointing us in the direction of the cross. Our God is revealing himself in deeper and deeper ways. Looking forward is believing in God's plan. Looking forward is believing in God's timing. Looking forward is trusting God at his word. And, and, and so we have to ask ourselves, do we really trust God? I mean, in the dark times of life, in the dark night of the soul, do we trust that God is with us, that God has got our back? Well, I guess maybe a good way to, to answer that question is in verse 9 where it says, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do you find yourself always flying off the handle when things don't go the way you planned or the way you like? A quick temper is of a foolish heart. The Proverbs are full of uh, messages of that. In fact, Proverbs 14 says, a man of quick temper acts foolishly. This is about reactionary anger. This is about you snap, you hear the rubber band go off in your head, your ears are hot. You ever get that way? Where your ears are actually hot. And in anger, you do or say something you wish you could take back. But the toothpaste is out of the tube. It doesn't go back in. 
what the teacher is telling us, that that type of anger, that fly-off-the-handle anger, is first of all, us not trusting God. And it's a sign of spiritual immaturity. And so he rounds out this 12-verse scattered thought section of chapter 7 with this. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter, but the advantages of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. So he's saying, listen, money is a good thing. We've talked about if that's your focus in life, it's not such a good thing. But to have it, it's okay. But wisdom, wisdom is better. In the Proverbs it says, <laughs> you know what the beginning of wisdom is? Get wisdom. Okay. You can't buy wisdom. You can pray for it. You can experience life and turn to God and receive it. But it's not something that we can just go to the store and purchase. Wisdom preserves the life of those who have it, of those who possess it. You can tell when somebody walks in that that stage of their life where they just leak wisdom. There's something that's attractive about it. There's something that pulls us towards them. And usually it's, it's those of the older generation. Scriptures say that gray hair is all about the wisdom. That's why I'm gray here, because I just speak it all the time. It just flows. There's none up here. There's a few in my ears because I don't hear wisdom well, but I digress. But there's something about the person that they go through life in a very different way. It's a God-ordained gift. It's something that we're to seek because it does preserve who we are. Yeah, money's good. It can buy stuff. It can give us things, but wisdom. Godly wisdom is of more profit than anything this world will ever have to offer. It guards our heart against sinful reactionary anger. It preserves our life. Spiritual wisdom points us to Jesus and there can be nothing more important in life. And so maybe this morning in the scattered way of Solomon, something kind of was stirred in you. Maybe, maybe you need prayer over something that God has put into your heart something that you're wrestling with, something that you're uneasy with, something that you've, you just don't trust him with. It's okay not to trust God for a season. It's part of our humanity. Don't stay there. Don't stay there. There's people that are going to be up here at the cross to pray with you, or for you. And if you don't want to come up here, there'll be people sitting down. Find someone and ask, hey, will you pray with me? And for those of you who want to continue together and kind of chatting, please join us in the cafe. Once again, the garishes have laid out quite the spread. I was here yesterday sneaking, testing their food, and it's very good. So let me pray for us. Father,
thank you for your word and that you've preserved it for so many years. Now help us to live it. Help these pages become part of our life. Help these verses become part of our interior heart, soul, mind. And may they bring blessing to us. And in that abundance, may we bless others. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. I will see you next week.